Boss Uncaged is a weekly podcast that releases the origin stories of business owners and entrepreneurs as they become uncaged trailblazers. In each episode, our hosts, S.A. Grant and guests construct narrative accounts of their collective business journeys and growth strategies. Learn key success habits and how to stay motivated through failure, all while developing a boss uncaged mindset. Break out of your cage and welcome our host, S.A. Grant. Welcome, welcome back to Boss Uncaged Podcast. Today we're having some technical difficulties and it's always funny as a podcaster, you just have to kind of run with it, right? So um, as I was saying, Edgar is an individual that I was looking forward to interviewing because he has like a really diverse background and a similar background to my own. Uh, Most of you know that I started off with graffiti and so did Edgar. And just like many graffiti artists over the years, you kind of figure out new things to do with your art, right? So you kind of jump into multiple different things, whether you become a graphic designer, whether you become an architect, whatever it is. And Edgar follows that same exact path so when it comes down to nicknaming edgar i'm gonna nick nickname him the modernist boss so without further ado edgar why don't you talk to our audience and tell them a little bit more about who you are and what we're talking about today yeah hey man um i like the nickname that's for sure um i yeah you're right i did grow up as a graffiti artist as a kid you know i started i grew up in san francisco um and uh you know, I wasn't the best graffiti artist, but I was the most clever, you know, and I, I had a, a whole crew of friends and, and um, I turned it into a small business called Graffiti Graphics. And uh, I was able to, you know, go out and, and, um, and really sell the nightclubs and sell the walls and Lollapaloozas and the bands and all that, you know, on this team that I had. And, and, um, and then, you know, later on, I, you know, parlayed that into, into a furniture business. I dropped out of high school and started my first furniture company. And, and that brings us all the way, you know, here today, you know, if we were to fast forward, you know, 30, was it be 30, 30 years, something like that, 35 years. Um, um, you know, I have a furniture company today. I make, I make really the best. And I kind of use that old, like old school graffiti vibe. Like mm-hmm. I am the sofa King, like no joke. And, um, you know, we, we going, you know, you know how it goes. You call yourself king of this or I'm the king of that street or whatever. Yeah. Well, I'm actually the sofa king. And uh, I, I run a company called Benchmade Modern and uh, we sell some badass sofas. And and really, they are actually like the best online sofas. And that's that's no joke. And I take a lot of pride in that. Cool. So, I mean, I think you definitely gave us a lot of things to to unpack. So the first thing I want to talk about, like, you know, kind of going back to the graffiti and, and I watched, you know, few of your, your other interviews and the one thing i kept hoping for somebody would ask you and i haven't heard it yet but like every graffiti artist has a tag name what was your tag name back in the day ah dude you gotta say it like yo what you write dude you know <laughs> what, what, what you putting up son what you putting From up one graffiti artist to another that's <laughs> like that's like a, a podcaster you know that's never been to the streets so yeah. what was her tag there sir you know no man i was blaze i was blaze tbc the king of height and, um, you know, and, and I, like I said, in San Francisco, uh, the Booyah crew was my crew. And, uh, you know, I smelled Blaze. It's funny, funny enough. This is so stupid. I, I was BLA. My last name is Blazona, right? Easy, Blaze, right? B-L-A-Z-E. But no, I had to spell with an S so that my parents wouldn't know when they saw my name on the wall everywhere in the neighborhood. You know, they would think it's, you know, Blaze or something dumb like that, you know? So I... Uh, I uh, I blew it on that one. I think I think I should have just taken the hit and gone with the blaze of the Z. 
Nice, nice. So, I mean, obviously, you have an art background, which is hell of cool for anyone that's that's in your industry. And again, you're talking about textiles, and I think you have a different keen eye than someone that's an interior designer. Like we look at paint, we look at colors completely different than the normal person. So, like going back to like your your upbringing, right? Were you more of like a, a spray pan, spray can graffiti artist? Were you more of a black book? Were you more sandpaper on glass? Like what flavor did you tag in? Yeah, I was a, uh, a spray paint artist. I, you know, we painted some pretty big ass murals. Um, and like I said, you know, I mainly painted for the clubs. I, we did all the skate contests that came through San Francisco. Um, you know, we got into, you know, making our own skinny caps and fat caps and, nice. and really fine tuning that whole um, process. And this is before you could go to the store. In fact, it was literally yesterday I went online for the first time in my life. I bought an assortment pack of caps. Like that is the craziest thing. If, if you were a graffiti artist, you know, yeah. like back in the day, you'd have to get the Krylon crystal clear caps. We call them phantom caps, right? And you would go into the store and you would you would take all the tops off and either someone already got them for it ahead of you or you, you know, you kind of was payday. And, uh, but nowadays you can, you know, you get this paint, it's like, it's graffiti paint and you buy it at the graffiti store and you get your caps all thin right. and fat and all these crazy caps. It is so bizarre, you know, how things have changed. You know, uh, I, I gladly paid the nine 99 instead of, you know, instead of stealing them, you know, like yeah. you know, the whole deal is such a trip, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's great to kind of, I can see, I see you lit up. Cause I mean, obviously, I mean, anybody has a graffiti background I mean, it, it talks to your soul, especially in today's world, it's, it's night and day difference. People are getting paid to do that art. Right. So you took that graffiti art and obviously you grew up in a family that was full of entrepreneurs. So like, just talk about that. You know, your family were yeah. essentially more in construction, but you know, you're, you're walking around bombing and tagging. Like, how did that work? I mean, like kind of talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So Again, you know, back to San Francisco, you know, my family was building restaurants and hotels and stuff like that. And, and, uh, you know, I had a, I had a good family life. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, but, but I kind of wanted to lean on the other side. I like the street, oh. you know, I, and again, I was this little white kid kind of growing up in this ghetto neighborhood, you know, lower hate in San Francisco. It was pretty rough. Mm -hmm. um, but as a, I kind of use that as my cover, you know, I could, I could get away with a lot more by being this kind of you know, up, uppity cute white kid, you know, that could, they could walk into a store and steal a bunch of paint and then go to a mural and then, you know, and then, and then walk into a, a meeting and, and sell us on, you know, doing big murals, you know, Lollapalooza. I mean, that was a big deal when we got that, that contract, you know? And so it was, um, you know, it was a time when, you know, my parents weren't necessarily paying a ton of attention, but at the same time, I was revolting against them, right? I was an artist. There was no way I was going to be in the construction business, right? I was, I was moving out. I was, I was out of there. You know, I had a car when I was 15. They didn't know it, you know, for a year and a half, they had no idea I had a car. I had no license or anything, but you know, I was, I was just doing my own thing. And, and, um, and, and acting as a little businessman. I mean, really, that was kind of the beginning of, of my business career. You know, I mean, I had lemonade stands and watermelon stands and all that, you know, going way, way back. But this was my first real foray in, in the business and making sure, you know, with reasonable amounts of money, you know, and, and, um, and then from there, you know, the creativity, you, you know, like you mentioned, you know, I'm an artist, right? So how do I turn my art into into something right and and what's interesting about graffiti and I, I think unless you're a writer 
you don't necessarily understand this. There's so much of these tactics that are happening around us, right? Like sticker campaigns and, and um, you know, postering and, and getting up, you know, it's all the same, right? It's, it's marketing, it's marketing 101. So how do I go out and market my business, right? And a lot of those guerrilla marketing tactics that we were doing back in the day are, are happening today in all sorts of businesses. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I mean, to your point about like the, the sticker campaigns and I, I even take it to the social media aspect of it, right? I mean, who can get up the most, get up the most frequently, be the loudest, be the biggest, be the boldest, do the most outlandish tag on a, a top of a building or, or do like a fill-in piece upside down off yeah. the train track and you do it on camera now. And now that's, that's what gets you your 15 minutes yeah. of fame. Yeah. So with that, I mean, obviously you took that and you, you made it more into a business. And one of your pre-businesses before we even get into the furnitures was, I think you, you named it like um, a, a nickname was um, the Backyard Gorilla Architect. So I want to yeah. kind of talk about like that business a little bit. Like how did you come up with that concept for that business? Yeah. And how did that stem from where you were? You have modular dwellings, gorilla architecture. So it was, again, it was a time when, you know, I was a modernist. I've always been a modernist. I love this modern look and feel. And in the city filled with, you know, Victorians and old houses, there wasn't really a true modern vibe, right? And so you didn't you didn't actually get to live in modernism. Yeah, maybe your kitchen was modern or your bathroom was modern, or maybe you had some modern furniture in it, but your house wasn't modern, right? And so my whole thing was, how can I build architecture that is modern and, and through and through, like from the moment you enter the door into the space, the furniture and so on. However, I didn't have a ton of money and I've always been a build it first, draw it later kind of guy. And so, so for me, I started building these sheds. And if you Google my name, Edgar Blazona, Modular Dwellings or MD100, you'll find all these modern buildings that I did or that I sold a set of plans for. And all these buildings have come across the country of people that have made their own buildings using my set of plans. Oh. And so that was a real thing of like, how do I get this modern modern into play? And the gorilla part was I would set these buildings up on a street corner and I would throw a party in them, right? And you could come and have a, you know, cosmopolitan and walk in and out of this building and have this vibe, this this swag to you that that really like felt modern and felt crisp and new and exciting. And and that's really what gorilla architecture was to me. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's a hell of a segue because I mean, obviously, you kind of remind me of like a hybrid of kind of like a a well known graffiti artist that that had a baby with Frank Lloyd Wright, and then you, <laughs> yeah. you, you popped out and it was like, okay, I'm going to take the best of both worlds and I'm going to create furniture, right? So you're yeah. not just creating any furniture. I mean, you've been labeled like the best sofa online for a period of time, and it was named by multiple different magazines like New York Times and stuff like that. So I want you to kind of talk about like that journey. And I think you were saying something along the lines that you had to go to furniture college, but that furniture college was you traveling to the manufacturers to kind to figure out how to develop the furniture so let's talk about that so there's something interesting you know and I, I i it feels really weird to talk in a business setting about these about these ways and about these ways that i came up because they're not necessarily your traditional way right i mean i kind of had to come up as a little punk ass right i had to like i had to weave my way into these places and 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 in fact you know I, I, my furniture college was Pottery Barn, right? Mm. I had to go get a job at Pottery Barn. I had to close this little business that I had down. And then I had to go get a job at Pottery Barn 
well, that wasn't good enough. So what? So I'm sitting in this office cube at Pottery Barn drawing furniture. Like that's not good enough. I needed to get into the factory. So how do I do that? Right. So I had to create problems. I had to create, I had to point out these problems, make a bigger deal of them, and then explain to these people how I was going to go to the factory in China and fix them for them. Right. This young dude who, you know, who knows nothing really, you know, I'm going to go tell Pottery Barn, this giant mega company and this mega factory, how to like change their business, you know, but I did, I was able to do that. And I, and I, I found this little, I, you know, I made people happy and I was able to help these designers and these artists kind of create what they wanted to create because they're paper drawers, right? They draw stuff on paper, right? I actually make things with my hands. And so I could kind of interpret what they wanted and then go to the factory and then kind of like magic make it, you know, and bring it back and be like, ah, this is this is some good stuff. So so for me, that was a way to kind of, you know, use that that ingenuity or that that, you know, different way around things and just, you know, a paper guy um, to really kind of, you know, make a name for myself. And and um, and for a long time, I did that. And, you know, frankly, I don't see things being all that much different now. I'm still. You know, I'm still this dude who's like, you know, bobbing and shaking and trying to trying to create, you know, <laughs> these these things. I, I sometimes I feel like an imposter, you know, but, yeah. you know, I look around the room and I think I know more than anybody in this room about furniture. I've been here the longest. Mm -hmm. I might still be the youngest. Right. There's a furniture company. There's a bunch of old dudes. I'm still the youngest, but I've actually been in the business much longer than they am because I dropped out of high school and started a furniture company. Hmm. So, I mean, it's definitely interesting. And I, I love like painting the picture of your, of your story, right? I mean, you, we're talking about graffiti. And again, most people, they don't even understand like the real passion behind graffiti. And then you're like, okay, well, how do I take that and start making money? You start doing murals on walls. And then how do I take that? And then you said you dropped that business and you jumped into Pottery Barn. And you was like, even still, while you're working there, you're looking for your next opportunity. So that kind of leads me to um, direct to consumer. Because obviously, like that, that was the problem. The problem was trying to get particular furniture to someone in a shorter period of time. And then you kind of either stumble across it or did you figure it out? Well, you know, when I went to Pottery Barn, I knew, you know, I, I look, I'm a modernist, right? Mm -hmm. I make modern stuff, right? I used, to, I used to hustle on the sidewalk. Man, I would set up my stuff on the sidewalk in front of the bar and sell coffee tables in front of the bar at night, right? But all modern stuff, right? And when I took that job at Pottery Barn, you know, it was more of like a country vibe. And, and, and while they had some modern stuff, but it was more of this one kind of look. And so I knew I'd always have to get back to modernism. So I created a brand called True Modern. It was a wholesale brand. And so that was a big, interesting moment, right? I, I had all this furniture. I somehow I convinced this factory to, you know, sell me a bunch of furniture for basically nothing. And, and I was able to import it and and then the 2008 crash happened. I had all these, I had two warehouses, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast, filled with furniture. And my sales stopped, right? It was a crash of 2008. And I realized, man, I need to figure out a better business model that doesn't have inventory. What can I do, right? And I started thinking, well, sofas, right? I started making these sofas. And even that was a hack. I mean, talk about a hack. I, I couldn't convince, I was in the modern kids furniture business at the time, brand called True Modern, right? I went to these sofa manufacturers and was like, I wanna, I'm going to make sofas. And they were like, well, show us your sofa company. I'm like, well, here's my modern kids furniture company. And they're like, well, you got to have a sofa company to come, you know, to get stuff from us. 
I was like, okay. So I started buying sofas at cost. I had this like little guy making me sofas. They were my sofas, my designs, but I would buy them for like $2,000, just like I would sell them for, right? I would buy them for $2,000 and I would sell them for $2,000. I made zero money, right? But what I did was I built a sofa business that way. And so then I went back to that sofa company and I was like, here's my sofa company, right? And here's my, 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 my stuff. He didn't know that I was buying them for $2,000 and selling them for $2,000. And they're like, okay, a thousand dollars a sofa. And I'm like, now I'm in the sofa business. And that started my direct consumer. eye. right. I started to realize, you know, as a wholesaler, if I could just get directly to the customer, you know, but at that time, it was kind of a, a time when you you were either a wholesaler or not. Mm-hmm. So I had to go out and start another brand on top of True Modern to, to be a direct-to-consumer. I couldn't cloud those two up because, I frankly, I needed the money that the wholesale business was driving in. And so I started Benchmade Modern. And, you know, slowly but surely, I was in the sofa business and, and started to make a name for myself. And I started to make yeah. the best quality stuff I could. And, and that was really important. And, and that slowly, you know, but all those guerrilla tactics and all that, I did all that stuff along the way with it. So I think it's definitely interesting because I mean, obviously, like a household name that it could have been a competitor or you could have utilized them was, I guess, Wayfair, right? And yep. Wayfair kind of fits in that space, and they they just don't sell sofas; they sell a little bit of everything else. Were you more of a wholesaler for them, or how did, did you ever partner with them? How, how did that yeah. that work with them being in the market at the same time? Yeah, whole, well, Wayfair was a good a good customer for me. I was very early on in Wayfair. They had a they had a brand called All Modern. And uh, it was another spinoff. You know, Wayfair used to be what was called CSN stores. And it was a bunch of different stores owned by one corporation, CSN stores. And so it was like, you know, probably all modern, probably Wayfair, you know, some toilet brand and some other brand, you know, on and on and on. And and it all got consolidated later on to Wayfair. However, I was a wholesaler. I kind of brought back that splayed leg sofa that you see everywhere. It's a mid-century modern looking sofa. I was the first to kind of bring that sofa back into into the light. And and now you see it everywhere, of course. But that sofa did really, really well for me at at, at All Modern. And um, that helped me, that wholesale business helped me, you know, make enough to start to build Benchmade, Benchmade Modern. And and again, like I didn't want to mess with that too much, right? I wanted to I wanted to kind of keep keep um, those separate. And then as I built Benchmade Modern, um, I kind of put all my eggs in that basket later on. Hmm. I mean, I, I mean, I'm loving your story. I mean, obviously, it's kind of like not to say rags to riches, but I would say from paint to riches, right? So I mean, yeah. kind of talking Our about lane. yeah, for sure, for sure, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So if you could define yourself, right, if, if you could, I mean, obviously, uh, modernist is, is one of the words, but if you had an option to select three other words, right, what would those three words be to describe you? Ah, oh, man, crafty, right? Um, I would say modernist, I'd say crafty, um, uh, entrepreneurial. I guess those would be the three words, you know, I there's something that we missed in there, though, in those three words that, you know, it is about... There's this attitude that I that I have that I I can't quite I, and at times I don't even know if it's good or bad you know it's just it's this thing that kind of like our our whole brand thing right now is rebellious luxury right mm-hmm. that's 
That's our tagline of Benchmade Modern, right? And so there's this thing inside of me that is rebellious, right? There's this thing inside of me that that is, you know, that's still that punk ass. That's still this. I'm, I'm like, I am I? I'm not. I'm 50 years old, and I'm still like kind of this punk ass kid, you know. And but I'm in business, and so. So I've had to use that to kind of build my business, you know, and a funny, funny story. If you go to my Twitter account right now and you look at my pinned tweet, I'm actually at Edgar Blazona at Twitter and I'm, I'm actually calling out other sofa manufacturers. Hey, sofa manufacturers, I know they all follow me. How about this? How about we both put up our best stuff? We send it to a writer, you know, a, a magazine writer. You send your best stuff. I send my best stuff. Whoever wins crown sofa king publicly, like that's it. Like I'm calling out these dudes, but no one wants to actually take that bait. And so, and I don't know if that's like a good thing or a bad thing, but, but it's kind of part of who I am and, and it's part of the brands that I'm, that I'm building. Well, I think it's part of like your, your original street swag, street credit, right? So I mean, the point to where if you're going to buff someone's tag and if they come back and buff your tag, whoever has the last buff wins, wins the battle, right? <laughs> yeah. So I mean, that, that's what, that's what you're doing right now. You're saying, yeah. okay, my, my tag versus your tag, my couch versus your couch, whoever yeah. has the best one stands up and wins. So you know, that's why I started off with graffiti because again, that is you through and through no matter what you're doing that, that, yeah. that that's that's the, the seeds that you grew up on so yeah. with with the, with that demeanor right you're talking about you have like this it's not an arrogance it's just lots of your swag this is who you are and you're willing to challenge the system how does that ha have affected you when you walk into boardrooms or you walk into higher corporations and you're sitting in front of someone that may be 50 60 70 years old but you have that swag and they don't how yeah. have you overcome that over the years yeah, that's a really, really good question. Um, it's changed. It's changed over the years. You know, at one point I was the youngest in the room and I was able to use that to my advantage, right? It was a not a cute thing, but it was definitely like, you know, I was able to use that, that youngest. Now I'm not the youngest in the room, but I'm still the coolest in the room, right? You know, in the furniture industry, there's a, this, there's a group of people that it's like, you know, they're they're pretty old, right? Not everybody. It's, it's a kind of a changing of the tide right now. You're starting to see, but but I'm still, you know, they don't know how to harness me in in reality, and I don't necessarily. I have to be very careful in how I approach that because of, you know, because I'm the kind of loose cannon, right? And I have to make people comfortable with me first before I can kind of be excuse me, a Luther cannon, right? I gotta, I gotta show them that, yeah, I can play with you too. Right. And I can, I can, you know, I can sit with you and I can, I can play, you know, furniture executive really, really well. Um, and then at the same time, I can kind of, you know, play the more fun executive. I, I re we recently sold our brand and, and the CEO of the company that, that acquired us, he said, you know, I know we bought the disruptor, but man, you sure are disruptive. <laughs> right like i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing but but it's what i'm doing and and you know going back to that boardroom thing like i just have to play it cool you know because i i do have to fit not everyone can go into the room and just be a punk ass no one wants that like you have to be able to back it up and you kind of have to tone it down based on who you're with
<laughs> so, I mean, obviously you've been on this journey for, for a couple of decades right now. So the, the idea of this conversation that we're having, somebody maybe hearing about you for the first time and the perception of you being an overnight success may be a reality to them. But, in, but yeah. how long have you been on your journey? Like compiling the years total? I mean, like 35. No joke. I'm 50 now and I left high school to start a furniture company. Right. I was I was I was working at Pottery Barn um, in the uh, early 90s. Right. That was a long time ago. Right. So I was I was starting to be something, you know, in the early 90s. And um, and so, no, it's not an overnight success. And and frankly, it's taken me 30 years to be able to admit these things that we're talking about today. Right. I, I wasn't talking about this 30 years ago. Right. This was not this was not who I was trying to be. In fact, I was kind of I was kind of hiding this stuff. Right. Because I had to play into the room. Right. Now, now, not so much. Now I can be a little bit more me, but I had to really like, you know, button up my tie mm -hmm. and go in there. And and as an artist, I had to, you know, I had to still shine. Right. But but I didn't have to, you know, it's funny as an artist. Right we are protected, right? You got to protect the artist, like, you know, his feelings and his, you know, his, his demeanor, <laughs> you know, like, is this environment good for you? You know, all that stuff, right? It's kind of like silly in a sense, you know, like I'm just a regular guy, right? But, you know, I kind of, you kind of get to play into that just a little bit. So let's play off of that, right? I mean, obviously you're you're into breaking eggs, right? I mean, obviously those eggs turn in, you're going to bake them, you're going to make cakes out of them. But again, you're breaking eggs left and right intentionally because that's just kind of who you are and you want to disrupt the system to a certain extent. So my next question is based upon if you could go back in time, right? Is there anything that you would want to change or is there any time frame that you would go back if you had a five minute window to whisper yeah. in your ears to say to change something? What would you do? What would you say? And when would you go back? Yeah, that's that's a great question too. I look, I want to I want to make it clear that I am not just about breaking eggs, right? I I I'm willing to break an egg, mm -hmm. right? I'm willing to break an egg to see what's inside it, okay? Right, but I'm not just breaking an egg just to break eggs, right? I, there's a real difference there, and I, I don't want it to be perceived one way versus the other. I think you know, do I want to understand how the engine works in the car? Yes. Right. Do I want to be the mechanic and and constantly take it apart? No. Hmm. Right. Do I want to, like, change the the tire from round to square? No, I don't. Right. I get it. Right. I understand. There's a reason why some of these things are the way that they are. But I am very, very curious what's in the tire. Right. What what keeps it, you know, inflated. Right. What what how does that work? And so and so when I look back and I think about what could I have changed? I maybe could have listened more, right? I, there could have been some moments that I listened more. I had a great, great mentor, um, um, a guy by the name of Gary Friedman. And Gary Friedman is the CEO of Restoration Hardware. Um, he was my CEO at, 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 at Pottery Barn when I was there. He created Pottery Barn. He made it what it was in the 90s and then later made Restoration what it is today. And um, this guy really kind of changed some of the things, some of the mentalities that that I had at the time. And and I maybe could have listened more when I was younger, right? I maybe could I could have maybe gone along with the program a little bit better, 
right? I could have just bit my my lip a little more and and gone along with it. So I think if I look back, maybe there wasn't one moment. I think just in general, you know, maybe I broke too many eggs. You know, maybe I let that get a, a little too far and I should have just listened a little more. Hmm. I mean, I, you know, kind of going back to the breaking egg thing, I mean, to your point, you're breaking eggs with intentions to figure out how to modify, update, you're doing it with purpose. And I think one of your things that you broke eggs on in your journey was the 24 hour turnaround time, right? Being able to have a sofa be created and delivered within 24 hours versus everyone else was taking five to six weeks. So again, you're breaking eggs with intention. I want, but I want to talk about like, how did you even perceive a 24 hour turnaround time like that you broke a, a fucking dozen eggs by doing that right so like yeah. how, how did how did that how did that pan out yeah yeah impressed with your homework by the way nice nice work you uh you did you did your your background you know when i did the 24 hour thing it was such a i mean no one took me seriously no one I had to build my own factory so I could raise money so I could prove to the world that I could make a sofa in 24 hours. Mm -hmm. Right. And I learned that I watched sofas being made in 24 hours. Hmm. Like I, I saw that, I saw that in factories. It doesn't even take 24 hours, right? It, it takes six to eight hours. Hmm. Right. So why does it take six weeks to get furniture made? Like, what is it that, that takes so long? So that was the question that I was probing. And, and I learned a few things, right? Like, yes, I can make you a sofa. You know, you could tell me right now, you know, what sofa did you want? I could make some calls. And literally six hours from now, that sofa would be done. I could send you a photo of it. And it would be just as nice as if I took six weeks. It would be no difference, right? But what I realized was people don't even want a sofa in 24 hours, right? They don't want a custom-made sofa in 24 hours because the perception is it can't be as nice, mm. right? So when I started doing these things, people were like, well, it must be a shitty sofa of, you know, restoration hardware is eight weeks, you know, and you're making it in 24 hours. Like, how could it be good? You know, and, and that, that is really, really not true. And I, and I proved that, right? I know that that's not the case, you know, but so there's, there's this customer perception. And, and so that was really the thing that I was fighting. And, and yeah, I did break eggs. You know, the, the reason why I take six weeks is because the line's long, right? Mm -hmm. You know why the line's long? The line's long is because we have these ordering processes in place where we don't even know if you have we have the red fabric. When you come into our, our store or whatever, you order a red sofa, the salesman's like, sure, yeah, we get it right for you. They don't know. They don't know if we have red fabric. I don't know if I have red fabric. In fact, I had to reach out to the mill and have red fabric and get red fabric. In fact, I might even reach out to the mill and have red fabric made, literally woven for that sofa. So I kind of had to jump around all those hoops, find better ways, right? Mm -hmm. Only have fabrics that are that are managed inventory. I mean, you know, that's not rocket science, right? Don't sell sofas with fabrics that you can't get your hands on tomorrow. Like, you know, what does it take to, to know that? And so those are the things that I was pushing against. So while I'd love to take like a lot of credit for, you know, doing sofas in 24 hours, you know, I, yeah, we did a few things that were magic, but not really. We just kind of looked at the whole process and rearranged it. Right. And, mm -hmm. and, and just said, Hey, look, I'm not comfortable with the sofa that takes six weeks. I don't even want it anymore. By the time it gets there, I don't even want that red color anymore. 
you know, I'm over it at that point. And, and so I think that's the eggs that I was breaking, right? Asking the question, why does it take six weeks and why are we okay with this? Hmm. I, I think, I think you, you, you made a solid point. I mean, the fact is you're not just break, making any sofa, you're making custom sofas and, and it kind of goes back to, to your upbringing. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong. I think like, your dad was essentially making like um, custom tables and, 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 and selling them with houses and stuff like that. So it, you grew up in an entrepreneurial household that gave you an opportunity to realize that you could break eggs and turn them into cupcakes yeah. and turn them into cakes and turn them into pies without having to hesitate without the fear behind it. So my yeah. next question on top of that is, like today, being that you had that upbringing, how do you then currently manage like your work life with your family life, considering that like you're that high energy individual? Yeah. Um, well, um, you know, you're correct. My father did was making these things and it, and it, and it taught me that, that you didn't have to settle for what came off the shelf, mm. right? You didn't have to, you didn't have to just, you know, uh, you know, buy that vase. You could, you could go and have to a pottery maker and have a vase made, right? You could, you could find ways to create these things that you had in your life that, that were available to you. You didn't have to just go down to any old store and, and pick what they happen to have because you need a vase, right? Same thing with furniture, you know, and then you go back to the question of, you know, how do I deal with my family and my life and all that? You know, I mean, look, I am a high energy person and I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly creative, right? So a lot of what we do, you know, and, and, and my life is about creativity, right? You know, and, and there's a lot of things that, that it just so happened that I picked a wife that's that's okay with all of that, right? You know, yeah, I'm a baseball dad, and yeah, I take my kids skiing, and you know, I do all these things with my kids and and whatnot, and and I and I have to do that, and I, and I learned I learned that I had to protect my family, right? That was a, probably the most important thing was that, that yeah, I could go out and I could I could get a new job or I could start a business, I could crash the car whatever, but I couldn't crash my family, right? That's the most precious thing that I had. It's the hardest thing to build, right? And, and so, um, and so I find that to be very, very important. And, and, you know, I'm not the best dad at times. I'm not the best husband at times, but I do know it's important. And, you know, you can only, you know, hit the fail button so many times with them and, and, um, and they need to be protected. I mean, I, I, I like the way, I mean, like the articulation of, of the way you define that, it, it kind of tells me that I, everything you're doing, I mean, obviously your family comes first, first and foremost, right? And I would think that you're, if your battery was like like a, a power plant, you're, you're the battery inside that power plant. So you're protecting your family, but ideally when you're protecting yourself on a day-to-day -day basis, what kind of routines do you have in the morning per se when you wake up? It kind of helps you get ready for your day. Yeah, you know, I don't, right? That's the thing. People ask me that all the time. I wish I did, right? I started looking at all these guys, you know, Russell Simmons comes to mind. Uh, um, I mean, there's a whole bunch of people that that meditate, right? It's a big part of their lives, right? And if you, you look around, there's a lot of really successful, famous people, but, but forget famous, they're successful, right? Mm -hmm. And they're successful because they meditate. And so I try that for a minute and that doesn't work, right? For me, it's about creativity, right? It's about feeding that creative side. 
Do I do it in the morning? Not necessarily. Do I make things constantly that's that, you know, I still make things constantly, right? I'm I'm out there in the backyard last night cutting down a table with a grinder and welding it, you know, taking four inches out of the top because I I told a friend that I'd make him an outdoor dining table, I don't know, a couple months ago, right? And so here I am, I'm grinding, I'm cutting, I'm welding, you know, I'm still out there doing that stuff. And and while I was, you know, cursing his name last night, <laughs> it is one of those things that keeps me going. It's that creativity. And, and so while it's not in the morning, my art, my art is making stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and I still do that, you know, on a pretty much daily basis, on a really regular basis. And if I'm not doing the work, I'm thinking about the work. It's definitely a part of my day. Hmm. I think it's definitely interesting. So, I mean, you don't have a general morning routine, but obviously you wake up and you, you get rolling, you get going. And I think I had listened to like one of your interviews and this next question is, is about books. And I forgot the name of the book, but it was a book that you that you read when you was a kid and you was like, that book got you. Like that book yeah. woke you up to let you know that you was an artist. So my next question is a three-part question. Like the first part is, you know, the name of that book, if, if you want to recommend that book to our yeah. audience. Number two is like, what books are you actively reading right now and number three is, have you had an opportunity to author any books as of yet? Yeah, so that book um, is called High Tech. It's a coffee table book. And it was a book in the uh, late 80s. Um, um, it was about taking industrial items and putting them in a home, right? Um, taking an aluminum scaffolding, a brand new aluminum scaffolding and creating, you know, on one level, a bed, on another level, a desk, you know, a ladder going to each of them and then put that whole thing in a room in a house, mm. uh, a man, a manhole cover, you know, polishing a manhole cover, color, chroming it, turning that into a coffee tables, you know, things like that. Um, industrial rugs, you know, felt, big heavy felts and how to turn a heavy felt pad into a rug and all these cool things. And a lot of these things you've seen later on, but it really inspired me. It really inspired me to take these objects and turn them into everyday, everyday um, objects. I still love that book, right? I still, that still, that book still inspires me, you know? And it was, it was a book that I grew up as a kid. It was my, my parents' coffee table book, but it really, really inspired me. So what books am I reading today? You know, none. Like I don't really read books and, and I, I'm, I'm a bit ashamed of that in a way. I don't have the time. I don't actually think that the books make me smarter, right? Because for me, it's about creating the art, right? It's the art. It's the experience of the art. It's about, it's about designing. It's about creating an environment around me. So, so, you know, have I been able to author anything? No, but I, I kind of build these environments and these spaces around me and, and even I mean, for people going back to the guerrilla architecture days, right? Like mm-hmm. I was building these spaces for people to, to feel modernism through and through. So that's kind of in a long, in a long way, you know, my creativity and my authoring, so to speak of an environment. Well, I mean, I think definitely you're also a textile junkie as well, too. I mean, like this entire podcast, you've been talking about textures, you've been talking about materials, you've been talking about fabric. And I think you rolled that into your business as well, too. I mean, your business, you guys send out a swatch box and, and that, that kind of helps build the trust with your clients because, again, you're not talking about a $200 couch. So I want you to talk about like that methodology behind how did you come up with saying, OK, 
we're going to sell a, a premium product and the way to buy into that premium product is to, to give them something that's shipped in two three two three four five days that has all the high quality materials in that box yeah the that's a good little trick of mine, right? First in the door. I don't know who I heard that from. It, probably Gary Friedman of Restoration Hardware, right? The book is going to be first in the door, right? When when we launch this thing, we're going to be first in the door. So when you come to my when you come to my site, benchmademodern.com, you go to Swatches page, you hit the the all button, you put your address in, and two days later, this giant box with a hundred swatches comes, you know, leathers, fabrics, velvets, all that, you know, big pieces with, you know, thread counts and, 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 um, you know, all the information, the cleaning information and all that. My philosophy was if I can be the most badass into the room first, mm -hmm. you're going to get this little envelope from some other guy selling you a $2,000 sofa. My sofas are not $2,000. Right. So, so, I'm, I'm, you're going to kind of look up to my stuff, right? You're going to look at, man, I wish I could get that one. Can I afford it? Gosh, you know, we're only going to buy it once. You know, maybe we should spend the four grand, you know? And, and so I'm kind of playing into that a bit, you know, but at the end of the day, it's not trickery. Like I have really good fabrics. I have really good materials inside the sofa. I always tell my team, I say, you know, if we're going to spend let's just say $1,000 on foam for a sofa. Mm -hmm. If we spend $1,200, we can get the best foam. So why would we not spend the extra $200 and get the best foam and make sure that the sofa never comes back because of a foam issue, right? Mm -hmm. And you know I've used that at, at every turn. So unfortunately, I have the most expensive materials in my sofa, right? But I don't get anything you know, back on the frame. I don't get anything back on the foam, you know, because I put the best stuff in it. And, and, you know, and, and that, that has, that translates from the swatch set, right? It's, it's all this, this just kind of triggering these things, right? Like, you know, if I can just trigger this thing in your head that says, wow, this is badass, right? Even by the time you get to sofa, you're like, it's going to be badass. Like there's no chance it's not going to be badass because look at this swatch kit, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, you know, we take that one step farther. I don't know. Did you see the printouts? Have you? Have you seen that button? You can you can go to the printout page. And, and this is a little trick of mine. You'll love this. I send out a full-scale drawing of whatever custom size sofa you want. Giant rolls of paper. So you bought a corner, you want a corner sectional, you want a hundred by 90, whatever it is, of this one particular size or or collection. I'll send you a piece of paper, two giant pieces of paper. You roll out onto the floor to make the sectional. You can see the cushion layout. You can lay on the floor on it. You can see, does my head and my feet fit in between the arms? Does my family fit on the sofa? And you can really kind of visualize what that sofa is. And, and it's those little tricks that I think help, you know, sell our product and make us a little bit different than everyone else. Well, I think in addition to that, I mean, obviously, you know, earlier on you were talking about being the, the sofa king. And it, like, you ever think about like graffiti back in the day, you put crowns up, you put the angels on top, you always put the yeah. arrows, you're always pointing to me, I'm yeah. one or So being like number one in that seat, right? I yes. think part of your, your sub-branding is the same because you use luxury a lot. Like, I think you have a, a sub brand for your guard called Lux, Lux Guard. And yeah. that's kind of playing into that whole crown thing. So I want you to kind of talk about like your your your, your micro branding a little bit. Because again, you have the macro, right? You have like the big scale, you're, you're delivering this package, you're delivering the roll, you're delivering the, these premium couches. But even on the small little nuances, like the way you're describing your guard, like, like how did you come up with that? 
Well, that's a good point. That it's interesting you pick up on that. So nice, nice detail, right? You 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 see that, right? And that, and you're right. It does go back to the background, you know. And it kind of, I mean, you know, if you say it, like I always go back to, you know, America's best burger, right? The number one hamburger in all of San Francisco. Like how 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 are you the number one hamburger in all of San Francisco? You're not. But you said it, right? And you and you must like you must live it, right? You must stand proud of your hamburger, right? And and so I I found that to be really interesting all of all of my career. And it does go back to the graffiti days. You know, I was King Blaze, Blaze King One, right? I mean, I like, you know, I, I did all that stuff, right? And and so yeah, I do carry that over. And and I and I am the sofa king, as stupid as that is, right? Like, I, I really do feel that way. Like, you know, an actual sofa king. Like, what is an actual sofa king? How stupid is that? But but I feel like, you know what? I make really good product and I can I can live on it. I can live with that. Like, I can, it's not, it's not just stuff that I'm selling. I haven't always been the sofa king, right? There was a time then when I wasn't, right? I, I made some shitty product, you know, and I, I was learning and I was making stuff. And I was trying to figure my price point, my materials and all that. And I had to learn. And, and now, now I really feel confident in that. And, and I think that carries over when you, when you talk about the Lux guard, like how do you name thing? You know, branding is so important. Signaling is, is even more important, right? And so, you know, one of the things that, that we do that, that, that you'll see is we put big windows, right? In everything, big windows mean fancy right luxury like only the best houses with luxury have floor to ceiling windows right so that's a that's a weird little signal that we do you know when you're when you're an aspirational buyer right mm -hmm. and you're like you want your house to look like that magazine and you want to be like you want to be one way you know there's something that that's very um that's very aspirational when you see these rooms and you're like oh man like I want my house to look like that, right? I want I want a big window, you know, but you have this little window with this little molding all the way around and some, you know, some little dumb little little curtains, you know, it doesn't look like anything like that at all, but you want your house to be like that. And and so again, it's all about signaling and it's all about, you know, we use that word rebellious luxury, right? You know, why are we rebellious, right? Because we're pushing against the norm, right? But we're luxury, right? Do I want to go out and buy a get a you know latte you know with my sofa no i don't i want a good sofa right i want a luxury sofa but i like the luxury right i like that it feels good and it has this feeling to it but i don't want all that other stuff right i want i want a nice sofa. i'll go get a latte somewhere else that actually makes really good lattes right and so i kind of look at this whole thing like that and and again it all goes back to signaling so, I mean, talking about signaling, like you said, I mean, you like the, the whole thing is more so you're making more of an environmental thing. It's not just about the physical item. It's about the emotional side effect, how someone feels in it. But again, going back to, you know, like, 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 like the swag. And then obviously you have like the psychology behind it and you're playing off of both of them. And I think one of your, your actual names for your sofas was like the like butter module. And it's kind of like you think about it like old term later, that's like butter, that's smooth. But you're playing into that. You're, you're talking about how smooth this leather is, how smooth this couch is. So I, first of all, I just want to say like the fact that you're still bringing in like the urban textures of the, the, the terminologies into the modern swag is sexy as fuck. 
it's sexy as hell because again most people they're not going to see that they're just going to be like oh the smooth like butter i just want to sit on it but they don't realize that you're tagging them they don't understand that you got a spray paint in your hand and you're bombing on them while they're standing there drooling on your sofa yeah, 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 yeah. It's intuitive. Yeah, I um, I like that stuff, right? I I like to find, I like to find the signaling, right? Again, it's it's and some people get it and some people don't, right? If you if you look at our if you look at our fabric names, right? These are all these are all designers and and places that that are signaling kind of undercover. You know, our leather, Marfa leather, right? That's all about Marfa, Texas. Donald Judd, right? He's a hero of mine. You know, the skinny fat sofa, the skinny fat sofa, our best selling sofa, right? That's that was my childhood nickname, right? I was the skinny kid. Uh, uh, no, I was the fat kid <laughs> that could get away from the cops like a skinny kid, right? And so people would be, oh, that dude's skinny fat, like, you know, and so. So, you know, and I was like, well, this sofa has skinny arms and fat cushions, right? Oh. This fat, you know, and so, and so it's those little things. And most people don't know that. I know it. A couple of friends know it, you know, the like butter thing, the, the OG couch potato, you know, it's those things that kind of signal a different vibe, right? It's not so stuffy, right? Can yeah. you imagine these people in their homes? <laughs> and they're like stuff you home right and they're like yeah man i bought the og couch potato you know <laughs> or like right like the, the the you know the like butter you know like you yeah. know and some people get it like you get it right some people don't and then some people do you know and we get these emails like man you guys got the best names and because we're 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 okay right do you know why everything is named after a freaking street right it's because you can't like you go to any any store it's either a street or a city right the reason for that is is because you can't trademark that so so we all name ourselves manhattan right because it's not trademarkable right you can't get in trouble for having a manhattan well then it's boring as shit right you have no you have no brand you have no you got no nothing, right? So, so for me, it's about you know putting on these, you know, putting on these things like ah, oh, it's soft like butter, smooth like butter. You know, it it has this feeling to it, and and then I just kind of vibe off of some, you know, some old lady, you know, in the middle of nowhere with her like butter sofa, telling her friends, you know. Yeah. Oh man, that, that is hilarious. So I mean, like, like that kind of brings me to like technology for a bit. Cause, I mean, we we haven't talked about that as of yet. And and your back end of your your current model is obviously drop shipping, and you're using um, Shopify. So like, why did you pick that platform out of all the platforms in, in the world? And obviously, Shopify is a big household name brand, and that's yeah. they're good. They're good across the board, but I mean, yeah. you could have made custom. You could have made your own. Why did you go with Shopify? Yeah, I did have custom. I did make my own. I mean, you know, this is probably site. 8.9, you know, something like that. Like it's pretty deep. And I, I did have my own site before that, you know, made from scratch, um, uh, basically built on the Magento platform. Um, the interesting thing about Shopify in particular, well, there's two things. One, um, Shopify is not an open platform in the sense that it's more like Apple, right? Where you you can't just get an app and put it on there, right? You you have to it has to go through a vetting process and all that. So so it makes for it it makes for things that don't break as much. I don't think people realize how much a site breaks, right? How often things 
constantly are needing updating brokenness. When you have a, just a simple site, you know, it's selling five things, whatever, you could use Facebook and, and, and build a site, you know, it's like nothing. But when you have a complex site and it's doing all kinds of things and, you know, pulling pricing, there's this thing called variance, right? Uh, Shopify has a variant rule, a hundred variant rule. I have uh, like 200,000 variants, right? I mean, I, I, you know, when you think about it, I got red sofa, brown leg, 90 inches, red sofa, brown leg, 95 inches, red sofa, brown leg, you know, red sofa, white leg, you know, 95 inches. I mean, there's so many variables there and Shopify doesn't support that. And so we've had to build some pretty serious workarounds in order to, to, to be on that platform. It's still worth it in the fact that it doesn't break as much, you know, Shopify is, is a, is a platform that is, that is, um, it's pretty easy to use. There's developers, there's plenty of developers. I'm always looking for places in other parts of the country where, where, you know, the cost of, of living and, and the hourly is a little less, right? So, so we, you know, we have a team in Canada that handles, handles our Shopify stuff, right? Shopify is from Canada, you know, so it's, it's like, and, and it's a great way to, you know, we work all throughout the world. Um, and, and I love Shopify. Shopify has done, done really, really well uh, for us, but, but it's not, don't get me wrong. There's nothing not custom about our site, right? There's no template on our site. You know, I mean, maybe at one point there was like, we started with the, oh, be cool. And then no, we can't do any of that. So I think, I think it's very cool. I mean, obviously you're leveraging a platform for its stability, which is, it's, yeah. you know, it makes perfect sense because most SaaS platforms nowadays, if they're going to scale, they're going to have to go through the hurdles of things breaking on a routine basis, left and right. Yeah. So you already surpassed that. So let's just take, just take that words of insight, that words of wisdom that you just dropped. And let's, let's personify that a little bit, right? Just say uh, I'm a younger kid. You know, I walk around with, with a Magnum 44 and it's not a gun. It's a marker right in my book bag yep. and, and, I, and I'm tagging and, and, and I'm catching up and I hear this this podcast and I'm like, well, maybe furniture is not my thing. But, you know, I want to do something with my graffiti. What words of wisdom would you have for that individual to help them to move forward and be successful? Yeah, uh, it's all about marketing. Right. And here, here's and I don't mean marketing like I've paid Facebook. Right. I, I don't mean that Facebook ads or, you know, Google ads or whatever. There's a reason why um, why famous artists, the artists that we know, the artists that we've heard of before, the musicians that we've heard of before, there's a reason why they're famous. There's a reason why we've heard of them. And it's not because they were the best musician or the best artist or the best tagger or the best graffiti artist, street artist, right? It's because they were good at marketing themselves, right? And I think that's the most valuable thing that anyone could do, no matter what size business is that they're doing. Even an influencer, right? An influencer is is the best at marketing, right? They've they figured out ways to kind of you know weave their way into the conversation, right? So what I would tell that little tagger, you know, with the Magnum Forty Five or the or the uh, oh man, there's so many names come back. The Sakura marker or the you know the ultra wide, you know, yes, sir. Wide when I ate myself you know man so what would i tell that guy i would say i would say look for ways to set yourself apart right you can't just be a tagger there's tons of taggers you can't just be a graffiti artist there's tons of graffiti artists right 
it's a tough road. So, so what can you do to be different, right? Off the top of my head, I'm the paint on cars guy, right? I paint cars. Like that's my thing, not illegally, but I, you know, I acquire cars and I paint a sick mural and I've set them up in a, you know, parked in the middle of some, you know, weird, you know, courtyard, right? That's my thing, right? So right there, I just came up with a quick little thing to make you different than every other tagger or graffiti artist out there in the country, right? So what are these ways that you can kind of set yourself apart, right? Your art has to be good. No, no joke. You can't, you, you know, you can't just have shitty art and be putting it on a car and putting it in some courtyard and expect to be famous, right? It doesn't work like that. But you got to find a way to break above the noise. And so, so, you know, the web, right? Graffiti artists these days, man, those kids, they don't even paint on the streets anymore. They paint in these crazy little, you know, alleys and these crazy little tunnels that no one ever is going to see except for that one photograph that they took and they got it out there, right? But now there's a million kids doing that, right? Now they're worldwide and there's a million kids doing that. So, so how do we be different? I think that's, I think that's really the key. I think that's what people underestimate is why is this one kid more successful than i am but i'm better than him Mm. right he's more successful than you because he's better at marketing himself and so you got to find a way above the noise very cool so i mean with that how does someone find you on internet i mean do you you want to send them to like your social media profiles no no, they gotta go to benchmademodern.com to check out you know um, our sofas of course Um, i'm on twitter edgar blazona at twitter Um, you know any google search for edgar blazona online will find all kinds of stuff i love doing an image search you find all kinds of cool stuff i've done over the years it's it's amazing it's like the best portfolio you ever had uh, in there so um, you know, they can find me there and, and, um, you know, reach out LinkedIn. You know, I, I get a lot of, a lot of inbound on LinkedIn. I try to answer people for the most part, you know, and, and, um, you know, I'm pretty giving. I, I'm, um, I'm try, I try to be helpful. You know, I, I reached out to a ton of people and got no reply and, and, uh, that sucks, you know? And so I'd rather, you know, I'd rather just say, Hey, or, Hey, I, I can't, I can't answer this right now, but, but, um, you know, but thanks for reaching out. So I, I'll, I'll do whatever I can to, to um, you know, kind of give some words back. Very cool. So that, that kind of brings me to like the, the like bonus round. And I got a couple of bonus questions for you, right? Um, one of them, again, because you have so many different achievements, which one is your most significant one to date? Well, I, I think this, this set of plans, you know, when I did these modular buildings, I everyone was rushing to the to the prefab movement right let's get these buildings down these nice houses down a hundred dollars a square foot and uh and and i i've I've been in these new york times articles be like this architect and this architect and at the bottom edgable zone and his sheds you know i was always this dude making sheds right and i'm not an architect either but i would i i started building these buildings and and then i i could never get this price down to a certain point and so finally, I, I sold the plans through a magazine called Ready Made Magazine. And so this MD100, it was a 100 square foot little little shed, you know, plan set that I that I uh, built. Unfortunately, I think that's going to be my legacy, right? Because if you Google search that, you'll find these buildings all over the country. And I, I hope that's really not my legacy, but it, it's it feels like maybe it will be. 
you know, I do think I'm making a name for myself in the sofa world. Um, and so my greatest achievement is, you know, look, it's probably being the sofa king, right? I mean, it's, it wasn't easy to get here. And so that's probably my greatest achievement. But unfortunately, I'll probably be known for these, these sheds that have, that have happened across the country. So, I mean, it's interesting that you bring up the sheds. Do you think that they're more so like they fall into the category of like tiny homes? I mean, like what flavor and like what's the use case analysis for those? Yeah, well, you know, I, I helped create that tiny home movement, right? It was me and, and a guy named Jay Schaefer, you know, who, who you know, who basically created these little little environments. And, and we reminded people that things didn't have to be giant and huge, right? My sheds were these backyard offices, basically secondary rooms, right? Guest rooms, that sort of thing. And so that's what they fall into, right? They fall into this secondary you know, glass and wood structure, you know, out in the backyard, a modern environment for you to kind of vibe out to and, and chill out to. And, and uh, while a tiny home is similar, you know, and I definitely built some, you know, things with bathrooms and kitchens and all that. Um, but, but, you know, these sheds were just, just a modern box that you could go out and, and uh, you know, do your work or watch TV or whatever. So um, Very cool. I think that, that that was really my, my thing back then. Very cool. So my last question for you is, um, is, 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 I will say it's my signature bonus question. If you could spend 24 hours with anyone, that person could be dead or alive, un uninterrupted for those 24 hours, who would it be and why? Gosh. I think it would have to be Donald Judd. Donald Judd, um, if you don't know who he is, he's the, he was the kind of um, – it kind of was the modernist, uh, minimalist modernist um, artist from New York. Oh. He created a place called Marfa, Texas. Well, Marfa, Texas is a town, but he started, you know, buying up buildings in Marfa, Texas and created what we now know as Marfa, right? And, and he built these buildings. He put all this art. He invited all his artist friends into this, into this town and, and, you know, they just took common places, you know, they bought the army barracks and, and redid it with all this great, great art, you know, and, oh. and I'd want to spend time with him, not because, you know, if you go to his, if you go and look him up, Donald Judd, minimalist artist, and you'll, you'll find all this stuff, you probably be like, oh man, what's that? Like, that's nothing, it's a plywood box, right? Oh. But he did it in a time when he was pushing the limits, he was pushing the boundaries of quote unquote art. I think I'd like to go back to him and say, how much of that was intentional? Like, did you really see through all that? Like, were you really doing all this stuff that everyone thinks you're so brilliant today? Or were you just doing your own shit and it just somehow made it? And, and you know, you, you, you made it and now everyone thinks you're brilliant. I think those are the things that I would like to ask. Like, how much of it was, you know, um, you know, reflection of, of who you are and how much was it actually like, like you kind of foreseen that, that movement and that, that period of time when, when there wasn't much as modernist architecture and art. I think that's a, that's a hell of a uh, intriguing answer. Cause I mean, he, he, the way you're describing him, he kind of sounds like the furniture, the furniture variation of Basquiat, like kind of like, pushing the limitations, simplifying the art down until where it's so simplistic. It looks like a kid could do it, but there's so much meaning and depth and there's so much richness in it. And yes. once you have to understand art, you can really see it. Yes. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But, but then take that back and then think of snobby 
you know, uh, artists, art critics in New York, right? That are like criticizing and, you know, is it art, is it not art? Like, yeah. did you foresee that? Or were you just building some stuff because you thought it was cool and that just became that? Like, I, that's what I would love to know is, is, you know, how much of that did you really, you know, was the plan versus this is just what I did when I was doing. Nice. Very cool. So going into closing, man, I, I, I think you're, if you're not a podcast host, by all means, I think you should be. Cause I mean, you have the charisma, you have the swag, you have the energy level. So if this is your first opportunity, I want to make you the host of the boss of cage podcast. My show is now officially yours. Interviewing <laughs> me. What questions do you have? Well, man, I want to know what you wrote. <laughs> what you write, dude? <laughs> <laughs> Funny enough, if you look at the first three letters of my name, S-A-G, and you add an S at the end, I was originally SAGS. So I, I, kind of brought, it, I brought it into the, the full circle and brought it into like my new alias. So, uh-huh. and, where, and where was that? Where did you, uh, you write? Uh, Brooklyn. In Brooklyn. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Those are good times, man. I had some good friends out there and, and – uh, you know, big, big ups to, to New York and Brooklyn and all that. It was, that was quite the time. It was like, it was like San Francisco, LA and New York. And, and, uh, you know, it, it was the place to be, you know, I, I mean, you know, you, you guys were like the founders, you know, we would look up to you. Those, that lettering technique would come down it would get kind of passed down, you know, from New York to California, you know, and then we would spin it off in one way. It was, uh, you know, some good times back then. So, um, yeah, yeah I would, I would want to know about that. I, I'd want to know, like, you know, what's it like to be a podcast guy? You know, like, no, really, not like, don't give me this, you know, well, what books did you read? Like, no, no, no. Like, what is it really like? Like, does it suck? Is it like, oh, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta prepare for this. I mean, you obviously did a lot of preparation um, for this, and I appreciate that. In fact, I haven't necessarily seen that. I've done quite a few interviews and, and I haven't seen that. So, so, um, so that's something, I mean, for real, like, you know, you're doing something different than most. So, so what's it like? What's it, you know, what, what is it a drag on your family? Is it, is it how much of, of your mental capacity does it take to do what you do? So it's kind of like, and again, we, we speak graffiti, right? So in, in the early days of graffiti, like when you're first tagging, it's more difficult, right? You're trying to get your hand style. You're trying to figure out how to use a can. You're trying to figure out your tips. You're trying to figure out your markers. You're drawing in a black book and you're practicing the art form. But then as you get seasoned with it, that shit comes naturally. You, you, you give me a random can and you hit a wall and you start splashing the tip and you get all this other things that people are looking like it's, it's, it's a miracle, but you're passionate. You love what the fuck you're doing. So every time you wake up, you're looking for that next tag, that next bomb, that next filling. So for me, I look at that as, as podcasting. It took me three years to get to where I'm at. But to your point, like the research that I do behind the scenes is because I love doing it. I love getting into the psyche of the person before I even meet them. Cause I, we only have about an hour. So I want us to make that bond a yeah. real bond in that one hour time versus being some superficial bullshit. And I'm asking you staged ass questions. And then yeah. you're just kind of like another damn podcast. Fuck that. Yeah. And again, yeah. I'm breaking eggs in my own way to a certain yeah. extent, yeah. but I'd like doing that because again, the feedback that you and I and the communication, the synergies that we have, we wouldn't have had that if I didn't come to the table like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, you can tell, you can tell. And that's cool. That's cool. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people are, are, as I'm giving the answer, they're looking down and they're reading the next question. And it, it really is a tough, makes for a tough interview and it makes for a tough bonding. And, 
and uh, and boy, it doesn't bring out the best in me, that's for sure. So it's it's cool that it's cool you do really, you know, props like it's cool what you do. Nice work. Yeah, well, I definitely appreciate it, man. So again, you're the host. You got any last questions, or are we signing off? Well, let, let's see about that shirt. Purpose, attitude. Let, what, what else you got there? Purpose, attitude, spirit, strength, intensity, um, obsession, and nerve, passion. Right? What's what's this shirt about? Did you just buy this, or did you make that, or 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 what is it? Oh, just like you, you know, Shopify store. So I mean, I have about three hundred and fifty shirts that. When they pop into my head, I'll just literally come up with a quote, come up with something, throw a design together and ask my team to upload it. So over the past three years, I have maybe like, I don't know, 64 different shirts with breaking down of what I like to look as the not the stereotypical definition of the words. Uh huh. Uh huh. Huh. That's cool. That's cool. See, you're still creating. You're still doing your art. I I, uh, I like making shirts, too. I make modernism for life, right? And it's all like modernism for life, yo. Like, this is my shit, and it's for life. Like, I didn't just come into modernism last week because it was cool because West Elm made it, right? This is my stuff for life. And uh, and so I have shirts like that. People are always like, what is that shirt? It's like, I was, these are some shirts I made like 10 years ago. You know, I've made way too many. I thought I could yeah, sell yeah. You know, well, so, I love it, man. Every once in a while, like when I have some downtime, I'll, I'll throw up a little piece in the black book and you can kind of see like that book bag, the two book bags behind me, the two shoes. Those uh-huh, are the pieces uh-huh. that I tagged up in the black book, scanned them in and uh-huh. the product. That's cool. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. Well, that's a wrap, man. I don't got any more questions for you. I appreciate your time and, and um, it was good getting to know you. We should stay in touch. And, and uh, anyone else out there who, who's, who's interested, you know, check me out at BenjaminModern.com or Edgar Bolzona at Twitter or uh, LinkedIn or something like that. So you, you can find me pretty easily out there. Cool. Well, I definitely appreciate you taking time out your busy schedule to be on the show. I think it was definitely a blast. And I mean, from I one tag to another, man, it was definitely, you're like the first person I've had the opportunity to kind of really dive into that, that psyche and talk about tagging. So I definitely appreciate you. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Well, thank you. I appreciate it too. Uh, S.A. Grant, over and out. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Boss Uncaged. I hope you got some helpful insight and clarity to the diverse approach on your journey to becoming an Uncaged Trailblazer. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. If this podcast has helped you or you have any additional questions, reach out and let me know. Email me at ask at sagrant.com or drop me your thoughts via a call or text at 762 762- 233-BOSS. That's 762-233-2677. I would love to hear from you. Remember, to become a boss in cage, you have to release your inner beast. S.A. Grant, signing off. Listeners of Boss in Cage are invited to download a free copy of our host, S.A. Grant's insightful ebook, Become an Uncaged Trailblazer. Learn how to release your primal success in 15 minutes a day. Download now at www.bossuncaged.com forward slash free book.